Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan, and in for Amy J. This morning is Charles Thomas, former ABC7 political reporter. Charles, good morning. Hey, good morning to you. A little bit easier to get here and get going on uh, this second day. Not so bad. Yeah. Yeah. Happy Valentine's Day to you, too, and to is that what, Is it Valentine's Day? day? <laughs> what? Yeah. Really? Well, <laughs> if, you believe, if you believe in those sorts of things, which I do not. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. But anyway. Uh, all right. I wanted to get your take on this since we haven't talked about this really um your take as a journalist on the russian collusion coverage for the better part well i don't know is it still ongoing i think msnbc is still they're still uh, doing that hanging still clinging to the uh, <laughs> trump was the manchurian candidate of one vladimir putin narrative but i i raise this again because of two things that have transpired one is this um Columbia Journalism Review five-part retrospective from David Girth, the former New York Times reporter, on the media's coverage. Mm -hmm. And then two is the recasting of what certain people said in the moment. And we had another one yesterday. Uh, Clap on, clap off, clap on, clap off, clap on, clap off, James Clapper, Mm. the former DNI, uh, saying that you know the idea that um that uh he called he and some 40 other odd former CIA deep state actors called the Hunter Biden laptop Russian disinformation before the 2020 election well that's just not true right that that's that's not true he that didn't happen um all we were doing says clap on clap off James Clappers all we were doing was raising a yellow flag that this could be Russian di- disinformation. Politico deliberately distorted what we said. It was clear in paragraph five of, of their statement. Sure, well, you can't expect uh, most journalists to get to paragraph five, number one. And uh, number two, it wasn't just the statement. It was James Clapper all of a sudden taken advantage of by that D.C. press corps that has you know, uh, deified him and the others like him. James Clapper, um, mischaracterized by Politico. Before you answer, just one more example of this. Now, this is going back to October because this effort to rewrite history by those individuals and so many associated with the Russian collusion hoax has been uh, underway for some time. Brett Baer had this great interview with a former CIA intelligence officer named David Priest 
who's a publisher of the national security website Lawfare. He was also one of the signatories of the letter, like mm-hmm. clap on, clap off, James Clapper, that the Biden Hunter Biden laptop had the earmarks of a Russian disinformation campaign. Here's what Priest said back in October. Uh, this is truly we're talking about the laptop issue. from hell. President Trump, Nobody. we're talking about race right now, and I do want to stay on the issue of race. President Trump, you've I have dis- to respond to that. Please, because look, very there are 50 former national intelligence folks who said that what this he's accusing me of is a Russian plant. You mean the laptop is now another Russia, Russia, Russia hoax? And that's exactly it. what is this that's where exactly you're what this is told. where he's So that was a reminder of how Biden used the letter that was signed by all of those uh, the, those intel officers like clap on clap off clapper and David Priest to um, to protect himself in the debate on the stretch against Trump. And here's the back and forth now between Bear and Priest about that. So understanding how you characterize it, but he characterized it differently and used it in a debate just days before an election. Yeah, I'll let President Biden speak for himself. He's capable of doing that. What I'll do is say that it has all the classic earmarks of a Russian campaign in the way it was disseminated and propagated through media. Do you regret signing on to the letter? Oh, absolutely not, because those words are still true. Do you think it has all the classic earmarks? Oh, absolutely not. No, this Even is. Even it wasn't true. It no. had the classic earmarks, but it wasn't true. What is not true? That it was Russian disinformation. That's not what we said in the letter. Read the actual letter, and we said we do not know if this is Russian disinformation. It has right? all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation. Exactly. The I difference between an information campaign and a disinformation campaign not get to candidate and a Joe misinformation Biden. campaign. It's Hold not on. my fault the if nuance. people don't look up definitions. I know, but you're, the purpose of the letter is to have an effect. And the nuance that you're talking about here never made it to candidate Biden because he said it plainly on a debate stage that obviously affected the dynamic, Man. don't you think? I would absolutely love for all news media to show nuance on all these issues instead of racing to sound bites. And in this case, some news media raced to sound bites. That's not helpful for the American people. And you I really think wish your that people. was helpful for the American people? Well, instead of quoting one sentence from it, if people actually read maybe an entire paragraph, it shows in that we don't know you if don't it's think Russian. It affected anything? I don't know if it affected anything. But we don't analyze to. American political but environments. We're trying to. What we were trying to do is point out that this has all the classic earmarks of a Russian information campaign. Not to say it's Russian disinformation, but to say that the propagation through American media and international media has all the classic earmarks of a Russian information campaign because we've seen it over and over and over again. They love to sow these kind of divisions and exacerbate them. That's not American. That's Russian. I got you. Yeah. But it ended up being a Biden information campaign because he used it in the campaign and in that debate. I encourage you to ask him about that. And I will. Thank you very much. Yeah, see, Charles, these poor babes in the woods, you know, the former DNI, these uh, CIA operatives, they uh, got uh, hoodwinked by the media. And so uh, they need to to uh, properly rehabilitate their reputations, given how they were victimized by the D.C. press corps. And the the um, the, the media outlets, the mainstream media has lost all of its credibility when I'm, when I'm speaking of W uh, what is it? Uh, MSNBC and, and CNN and the New York times, Washington post, uh, the big guys, uh, they, um, uh, you know, they've lost all their credibility. I mean, it's hard to read any of those publications or listen to any of those media outlets, uh, with any credibility today. And, you know, it's, it's one reason, you know, I say to myself, 
so many times, I don't think I would do it again. If I were an an 18, 19-year-old person who was interested in, I wouldn't be interested in journalism anymore because what they do is they report to fit a narrative, whatever the narrative might be for that particular outlet. And it's very difficult. I don't think I would want to do that. Uh, I would go into some other profession than journalism before I would take part in that. In fact, today, I get most of my news from my phone. I don't even look at the television um, or whatever, you know, that, that those main, mainstream media outlets. Right. And, and I don't even think an apology right now would really save many of those people because you'd have to get rid of the individual hosts. Um, I mean, when I was coming up, it was you wanted, as a young journalist who particularly interested in broadcasting, you wanted to be like Walter Cronkite. You wanted to be like John Chancellor. You wanted to be like Howard K. Smith. You, 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 that's who you wanted to be. That was the big guy. That, that, w- that was the icon. That was the, pers- that was the North Star, where you wanted to go. Today, it's just basically a lot of people spouting opinion and, uh, again, pushing a narrative. Well, it's interesting you say that about uh, if you were 18 or 19 today, would you go into this uh, looking at what it is today versus what it was when you were coming up? Because I think a lot of people are saying the same thing about the military, about intelligence agencies, about federal law enforcement. Uh, for the same reasons, they watch and listen to the antics of a James Clapper uh, or a David Priest. Uh, David Priest in that interview. I mean, if you if you listen to him, did it influence the election? What you guys did? Oh, absolutely yeah. not. Oh, really? Did it influence? He asked him again. Well, I have no idea. Well, which is it? You're a CIA analyst. You can't even keep your own story straight. Jim Clapper, who lied to the American people uh, in front of Congress about the uh, uh, federal government's uh, meta collection of data, people's personal data, personal com- phone conversations. Uh, doing the same thing, which, you know, if you look at paragraph five and you discard right. sort of uh, the, the way that we couched it in paragraph one, then it's very clear that we were manipulated by the media. Your job professionally was in part to manipulate the media. This is what you guys do, sending information through back channels and talking on background to people to try and advance a particular story or a particular angle to a story. And now you're, oh, my gosh, we were we were. Uh, hornswoggle by Politico. Give me a break. It's not credible. You're not credible. And the fact that you were the head of the uh, the, the Office of National Intelligence, the, 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 the idea that you were a senior CIA operative, that scares the hell out of me. And it's certainly not any organization I want to be a part of. You know, I, as you as you reopen this wound, I mean, I can feel my blood pressure beginning to rise again. And but I knowing what happened and, you know, I I suspected. I, well, I, I, I saw the facts. I mean, I saw what was being reported from the laptop in October of uh, 2020. So I knew something was going on, and I didn't believe those 50 plus people who signed that signed on to this Russian disinformation business. I was outraged then. Yeah. So why wouldn't other Americans? be equally outraged. I'm, I'm not smarter than everybody else. I mean, a lot of people, and when they went to the Capitol on January 6th, remember January 6th, they were outraged. 
they were angry, it, uh, and and they had a right to be angry about what was going on. No, people may not have been uh, manipulating voting machines and such, but they manipulated the information, and people realized that yeah. even back then. And so when when that January sixth riot happened at the Capitol, I mean that was one of the reasons people strongly suspected they were being manipulated by people like Clapper and this other guy you just uh Price, just yeah. Pray. yeah yeah they they strongly suspected that they Hold didn't these are regular folks who suspected that the election had been rigged and this is a way to rig elections with information you don't have to be out there monkeying around with 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 ballot machines you can do it this way too by giving people this information and when you have people with the titles or former titles uh, doing it, I mean, they have a certain degree of credibility. They don't have it anymore, but they had it back then. Right, and now comes David Gerth at Columbia Journalism Review to say to uh, these Americans whose spidey senses were tingling for the better part of the last six years as uh, the press corps and their um, – I don't know in which direction the stoogery goes. I mean, the the press corps is basically the comm shop for big government. So I guess the the comm shop doing the duty of uh, institutional interests opposed to Trump and transparently so. Now comes forward Columbia Journalism Review to say, you know, you guys were right. Sorry, not sorry exactly, but but you were right. You know, you you had it right. And so and 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 then what? Well, we said you had it right, and we said the media needs to do a real deep. Uh, you know, go in the dark for four days like Aaron Rodgers and think about what they're what they've done and what they want to do next. Th- th- that doesn't quite cut it. Holman Jenkins had a good piece in the Wall Street Journal too about this, just putting some perspective on this about the you know what kind of person you had to be to believe what was being promulgated for Trump's entire presidency. He writes, Mr. Trump was the most known person ever to run for president. He spent 35 years advertising his demerits to the American people. Turning him into a secret Russian agent was a revelation, all right, of how weak-minded certain media personalities are, how easily managed they are by their quote-unquote sources. Then he goes on. Then there's the Steele dossier. Anybody can say anything. To a reporter, a single substantiated claim is usually worth worth an infinity of unsupported claims. One fully substantiated story was starting reporters was staring reporters in the face, a paid foreign agent circulating evidence free allegations on behalf of the Clinton campaign. Lacking only was the imagination to see that the real story wasn't the one wasn't the uh, the one the source Christopher Steele was peddling. This deficiency tells you everything about the psychological milieu of today's press corps. Right. The the obvious story was the story they dutifully ignored to pick up and run with the evidence-free story that Christopher Steele was peddling on behalf of Hillary Clinton because they serve at the pleasure of Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden and James Clapper and David Priest and all of the institutional interests that are for uh, you know, undermining the interests of those common sense Americans and those common sense Americans uh, are hip to it in 2023 in a way they are probably in a way that probably shocked if they went back and looked at themselves in 2016 would shock them. They they would never believe what they know in 2023 back in 2016, but um, they were it was pounded into them.
there's nowhere to go but to accept this is how things are. And the Columbia Journalism Review just confirmed that that is indeed the case. You know, there's it's there's remarkable a, times. There's been a shift um, and, and I can certainly see it in publications such as the Chicago Tribune, a shift away from old school um, journalists who 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 live by a creed that. And, and moving toward this new crop of people, many of whom I've never heard of, who basically are are managed by well, a yeah. new a, a new class of managing editors. I mean, some of the stuff managed editors would not allow on the air or in print. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM five sixty The Answer mobile app. Just text the word app to six four six three six to download the app today. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, Equal housing lender. Signature Bank. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan, and in for Amy J this morning, former ABC7 political reporter Charles Thomas. We were talking about uh, clap on, clap off, James Clapper coming forward to... uh, try to rewrite his own personal history, salvage what's left of his reputation, as so many do. And it's a reminder about why we need to continue to ensure that the rewriting of history doesn't happen when it comes to the media's performance during the Trump years or the COVID policy responses or everything else under the sun that the ruling class types try to gaslight to you to believe didn't happen wasn't true, isn't true. And the question is, is that Columbia journalism critique of the D.C. press corps' Russian collusion propagandizing their running of an information campaign, if you will, is that good enough? Should Trump voters and possessors of common sense feel vindicated? And, uh, Charles, I wanted to let you uh, finish the thought um, uh, you were riffing on at the, at the end of our first segment, talking about the difference you see, including with sort of the editorial oversight uh, in, quote-unquote, journalism these days. Yeah, they've replaced uh, the real editors and and real reporters with these people who basically write to fit whatever the narrative is. And, you know, this is an appeal to young journalists, those who are in journalism school today. You have to work now to save the profession. Uh, not the business, the profession, because the profession right now uh, is at risk. And this dynamic began during the Trump administration, 
when major publications, major media outlets uh, begin to began to do things that I saw that really troubled me, like the Washington Post was printing anonymous op-eds from inside the White House. Remember those? Oh, yeah. Get out of here. What is an anonymous op-ed? I mean, it's an oxymoron. To go along it, with all their anonymous sources. Right. To go, exactly. I mean, it was an obvious um, job. You know, they were doing a hit job on the Trump administration. Whether you liked it or not, you just don't, we don't need in this country that kind of, um, I, don't, I, I even hesitate to call it reporting because let it me, isn't. Let and, me ask you, I'm sorry to interrupt, but let, let me ask you this question. Um, because you would have the historical perspective to comment. You came of age. Uh, there's a good piece in The Spectator that uh, argues that the Russian collusion coverage was the D.C. press corps' Vietnam, meaning you know Vietnam was the end of the era of good feelings between the American people and the government where the default position was to trust the federal government. Mm-hmm. Vietnam ended that, it, as the argument goes. Did the Russian collusion coverage and uh, any trust that the D.C. press corps has among at least half the American population? Well, uh, and the other half just won't admit it. Uh, but they know. Yeah. They know something's rotten here. Uh, yeah, it, it definitely destroyed the credibility. Today, I've got to go to six, seven different sources to, in order to get any semblance of information and i've got to do it on my phone i've got to go to you know different uh different sources websites um to get it i can't get it i can't get the news from the chicago tribune or the sun times or the washington post you can't read one publication not that you ever should have but it's no balance whatsoever everybody's got an agenda and the reporters are working to fit the agenda Something uh, else, too, too, that you mentioned, I just want you to develop um, the business versus actual journalism. You know, there's um, some reporting on this, and of course, it has, will not come as a shock to you or most of our listeners. But it's Im- important to point out that, you know, there were people in positions of decision making at these outlets that knew, whether from the very beginning or at least at some point, that none of this made any sense, that the, the, this, this just was not holding up under scrutiny. But it was generating a lot of clickbait. I mean, it was, it was generating a lot of clicks. The clickbait, which was their version of journalism, was generating a lot of, uh, of, of viewers, a lot of people going to sites. Subscriptions were up at the Gray Lady and the Amazon Post. And so they perpetuated a fraud knowingly because it was in their business interest to do so. Absolutely. I mean, you can see that with the Chicago Tribune. That's a classic example of that. When, when Hillary Clinton ran for, for a president, and I think 87% of the Chicago market, in large part because she was from Illinois, they voted for Hillary Clinton. At that point, I noticed the Chicago Tribune making this major shift after she lost. And then suddenly you had, I think John Cass was the only center-right columnist that they had, and they hired all of these these liberal columnists. Why? Well, I think they were trying to feed what they perceived to be the audience. They were patronizing the audience. And it just it, it went on and on and on until eventually they fired Cass, or Cass left. And, and that's an example of, of by the way, of a, 
how you got to go find the news now. You can't, you got to find uh, different points of view. You can't just get them in one publication. But I noticed that. They began to patronize the audience. They wanted to become, they wanted to out Sun Times, the Sun Times, because I think they thought that they would get more circulation. And they started this death spiral. Yeah. Uh, where they try to patronize the audience and they just continue to lose audience because they've lost all credibility. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. Uh, just uh, a couple of uh, riffs from this piece I mentioned in The Spectator, which is very good, Russiagate, the media's Vietnam. Uh, the author, Ashley uh, Rinberg, writes, that the most powerful woman in American politics was not just the source of the Steele dossier, but was personally approving and coordinating key elements of the attack campaign against an elected president is a journalistic bombshell. It's the kind of revelation that in any other context where the variables were changed for different parties and different politicians would trigger reams of prize-winning reporting followed by appearances on Sunday morning shows, the creation of podcasts and documentaries and so on. In this case, however, revelations about Clinton's direct involvement were barely reported. Um, And she goes on to just summarize uh, the whole Russian collusion effort. That effort failed and came with a serious uh, with a serious unintended consequences. Most Americans no longer trust the press. And paradoxically, the media's scorched earth campaign against Trump stirred up exactly the type of social, political and cultural chaos that Russian intelligence services attempt to sow in every American election. The very type of destabilizing destabilizing effort to which the media asserted Trump had held open the door in 2016. In point of fact, as it turns out. And uh, this bears repeating in perpetuity as long as there are Jim Clappers uh, out there trying to, uh, to, to, to restore their reputations. That the media, the D.C. press corps and their outlets across the Fruited Plains, including in Chicago, you mentioned a few of them, Charles. They did exactly what they accused Trump and the Russians of doing. <laughs> they always do. I mean, isn't that isn't it just the best? Yeah, they do it all the time. That that's their deal. I mean, but there's there's a a whole raft of other stories that break that they don't cover if they don't if the stories don't fit the narrative. What about this thing with um, uh, this Project Veritas thing where they got the 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 Pfizer executive right on camera saying these things? Now, whether he said he was doing it to impress his boyfriend or whatever, but. He said it. He said it. I got. I saw no coverage of that in in the like in, in the mainstream media. I didn't see any cover any follow up coverage of that. I mean, am I did I miss something or no? Or I mean, I, it, I, I thought it was I thought it was a story. It was a story. Uh, you 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 think you, uh, you think, think you think you think things related yeah. to the <laughs> vaccine? Uh, exactly. Is, is and that and a story? what I'm saying is that liberals. And, and and those who didn't vote or hate Donald Trump, they need to know that because they had jab, they took the jab. They need to know what's going on in the mind of the person who's developing vaccines. They well, need he, to know that. Why why didn't they report the story? Because it didn't fit the narrative. Well, he, and here's the thing. So so who are they in service of? If this is an obvious, they're in but, service of them of themselves and the and the and the this. I, 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 don't, I can't do can't go conspiracy theory here, but 
they, they're not in service to the public. They're not. Right. Because right. if they were, they would be apologizing like crazy over this, over the, the, um, the, the clapper stuff, uh, the, you know, the, the, um, the, the Hunter Biden laptop. thing. Right. The, the, you know, they're still, you know, slow walking that story. Well, well, Finley Peter Dunn, right, great Chicago journalist, actually, um, right, the job of the media is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And that's what all these J, I mean, when I was coming up, at least, that's what all these J school types, so that was their attitude. They were going to be the great protector of the little guy. They were going to make sure the little guy's interests were represented and they were going to hold those in power to account. And, of course, they do the opposite of that today, if they ever did. I mean, they certainly did more of it in previous generations, but but they do the opposite of that today. They afflict the afflicted to comfort certain of the comfortable. In other words, they have sacred cows. All their sacred cows are powerful interests. They're all shot callers in one sector or the other, where it's a politician or particular CEOs in particular industries. And that can change. You can be, a com- you can be a com- uh, one of the comfortable sacred cows in one moment, and you can be one of those that they hold up for opprobrium in the next, Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, so many mm-hmm. other examples. Um, sometimes Big Pharma is good, like Pfizer and Albert Burla when the COVID vaccine. Sometimes they're bad, as you heard with the State of the Union and Biden railing against Big Pharma and insulin prices. So uh, but but it's it's always in service to particular powerful interests against the little guy. They have their sacred cows. They defend them. Sometimes yeah. they change. But it's always in advance of the interests of the powerful associated with their larger political agenda, ideological agenda these days, which is to basically usher in a uh, a new Marxism in America, cultural and economic. I, 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 there's no doubt about that. I mean, they they can anoint they try to anoint certain people as the new standard of whatever like the guy who was representing stormy daniels are they praised oh yeah michael avenatti yeah, right he was, he was presidential a, serious uh, presidential candidate right right and you know and they do i hear any do i do i hear them did they ever apologize for that or i mean how did that get through an editor who are who are the editors today he who, was on cnn more than anderson cooper thank you and who are the editors i can't believe Man, I worked for some incredible editors during my 45 years working in mainstream media. I worked for some incredible people who I would fight with like crazy, but they always made me better. They always looked out for what was best for the publication, not best for the 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 powers that be. Um, They 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 worked for the people. And, you know, I could name them. I'm not going to name them here because I've missed too many of them. But I yeah. work for great editors. Those people have left the business. They are no longer working for mainstream media. They are now working for for small websites or, or um, like, we, you know, we, we mentioned, uh, you know, other people, people here not, not doing it anymore. Right. They, they can't. Right. Tom in Blue Island, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, good morning, Dan. Good morning, Charles. Good Charles, morning. excellent job filling in. Thank excellent you. Excellent job. Thank you. So it was plausible to believe that Donald Trump was screwing around with a porn star 
it was plausible to believe that Donald Trump fudged his taxes. What kind of a mope did you have to believe that Donald Trump, after 40 years in the public eye, was a Russian agent? And this carried on into the Biden administration. And if you guys remember, before the 2022 election, there were these little amorphous warnings about watch out for anything um, untoward going on in the election. These, these people are scumbags. And now... You know, as terrible as the things are, I, I don't even want to believe anything they report about what's going on in Ukraine with all these poor people suffering, because I just don't believe them. Thanks for the call, Tom. Frank, Arlington Heights. Yeah, they're liars. They're Pravda, the press, completely. I don't believe any of it either. Um, but I wanted to say that I think that our people in our country have given up their liberties, not so much for safety. Um, they've given it up for luxury. Why did so many people watch the Super Bowl? Why did so many conservatives watch the Super Bowl? I didn't. There's no reason to watch them. Um, but a lot of people like that, the luxury products that, that are offered to us in our world today. I think uh, also Brownstone had a really good article yesterday, talked about what our society has become. We've given up our freedoms, and we live in a world where we have suppression of dissent, surveillance of the masses, and indemnity for the elites. I think that sums up what our society's become. Thanks, Frank. Dan and Charles Thomas in for Amy J. Chicago's Morning Answer. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560 The Answer mobile app. Just text the word app to 64636 to download the app today. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, Equal housing lender. Signature Bank. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan, and in for Amy J. This morning is former ABC7 political reporter Charles Thomas. Charles, I wanted uh, to go through the 2022 election cycle with you um, for just a minute, because as um, a lot of our listeners will know, because they pay attention to what's going on, you were featured in a series of campaign commercials that um, um, that that I underwrote with the pack that I run, Liberty Principles Pack. It was a, a serial that we developed together called Straight Talk with Charles Thomas. And it was uh, unscripted. It was just basically you riffing on the governor's race in particular and uh, issues within the governor's race, a, a number of topics, because there were a number of different spots that people remember. 
And, you know, we've known each other for a long time when you were uh, doing political reporting for ABC. Occasionally you'd interview me for stories, you know, for a conservative perspective. And just from our conversations over the years, you know, I knew that you were sort of, you know, somewhere in the center. I didn't know exactly where you were, but I knew you were sort of center, not you were like an independent thinker. Still am, by the way. Good. Okay. An independent thinker and somewhere in the center. All right. Um, and But I think when you appeared on air to support Darren Bailey, to be openly critical of J.B. Pritzker, I think that surprised a lot of people. And I think, you know, for someone uh, in your former position coming out the way that you did, I think it rankled a lot of people, too. And i just like you to talk about how that all went down and what the blowback was, because um, I think it was you know great that you did it, of course. I was pleased that you did it because of the credibility you have in the market um, and the the example that it sets for other people to willing, you know, be willing to come forward and speak their piece as well. But, uh, you know, the, the, the ups and downs of doing so and how it netted out for you. Yeah. He, he, good, you know, uh, great topic, by the way, because um, I don't get to riff on that very often. Uh, but I, I have absolutely – well, I was apprehensive at first because, you know, as a journalist, I, I tried to hang in the middle there. And, um, you know, I always went and got that conservative perspective. I was the guy who would interview you. I don't right. know if the others did, but I would always seek you out. I would seek out some other, and conservatives are rare birds in this region, but um, I, I would always do that. It, it was part of who I am as a journalist. And um, But I was apprehensive about doing the ads, of course, because I knew it would be something new, and I had never really acted as a partisan in in any way um but i had met darren bailey uh and we had talked and we we connected we connected on our shared faith and um he's a good good man um if you if you talk to darren bailey and you ask him darren give us five words to describe yourself the first thing out of his mouth will be that he's a Christian. Um, then he would tell you, I'm a male, I'm a husband, I'm a father, and I'm a farmer. But that first thing, he's a Christian, I shared that with him, that, that we share that, that common faith, and um, I do trust him. I, I, I trust him. I trust he'll do, he would do the right thing as governor. And I saw so many things that J.B. Pritzker has done that really, that really, that violated who I am personally. So I'm I'm not going to support that guy. I'm going to support the guy I share common beliefs with. Um, I mean, what has J.B. brought to Illinois? I mean, he's brought he's expanded, expanded gaming. He's um, opened up all these weed stores, <laughs> and um, you know that that's J.B. And and you know he wants to make he wants to make Illinois the destination for abortions in the middle of the country. That's this is on record, and so um, I I supported Darren Bailey. I have no regrets. As I said, I was apprehensive about doing that, 
Now I'm glad I did it. I'm happy I did it because I think I'm showing people that you can act independent. You don't have to always, particularly as a black man, you don't have to fall for this Democrat okey-doke all the time. I mean, there are so many black people throughout Illinois who just pull that Democrat lever without thinking. They don't think at all. They don't understand. They don't look at the record. They just go Democrat because the Democrats have been very effective in this 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 uh, talking point that Republicans are racist, racist Republicans, and they bought into it. And what they have to understand is that they're being manipulated by that word. They're being manipulated because they aren't delivering anything to black people. Look at your schools. Look at your taxes if you're a black homeowner. I mean, look at all the, 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 the fundamentals, and you're getting nothing from the Democrat Party. And, they're, they, and, and they dominate. Uh, everywhere in the state now, but you're getting nothing as a black person. You have to look at an issue such as school choice. You have to look at that issue and say, well, wouldn't it be better if black people controlled their own schools and had some control over the educations of their children? Wouldn't that be better than what you have now where, where young men and women are graduating, black young men and women are graduating from Chicago public schools with a fourth grade reading level? graduating with a fourth grade reading level that's what they're giving you so maybe if you had school choice i know there are black private schools out there such as south suburban prep betty shabazz academy in grand crossing uh, providence st mel uh, that could use that school choice would benefit these schools and there would be other schools like them that could be developed that's just one issue that we have to understand that, hey, maybe Republican candidates who are talking about that issue, maybe we should join that conversation as opposed to the Democrat uh, policy, which is to continue what they've been doing to have schools built for 1,300 students with 50, 60 kids in them because they, that, that serves uh, the teachers' union. Uh, we, we have to talk about, the, the Republicans talk about family values. The black family is in crisis, which we talked about a bit yesterday. They have a conversation going on in the Republican Party about family values. Maybe we should join that conversation and see if we can affect that conversation. Because the Democrats are talking about pronouns, right? I mean, I, I want I want to talk about family values because our families are in crisis. So that's why I I want to, you know, I, I think it's we have to start thinking bilaterally. You know, we have to. We can't just keep going on and on and on with this, uh, this again, what I call the Democrat okie doke dance. Uh, we, we, we have to. And if I can s- step up at my old age as an elder, and say, look, I did it. Maybe you can do it, or at least try it, or at least explore it. And that, that, that's why I have absolutely no regrets. Because at some point, the next great, I think, leaders, the leaders of this country are going to have to appeal to all people. They have to, for this country to survive. We have to do it, and black people have to come into a, a new reality about where we are politically today 
as opposed to where we have been over the past 50, 75 years, which, which, which we've, our progress has, is stalling. And we have to be able to broker, leverage our political strength, and that is by talking to both parties and getting the best deal we can get for us. And, we, and this is a two-party system, so we've got to have communication with the other party. And, and, uh, and I think that that experience was a beginning. It was a beachhead. Oh, man, I lost a lot of so-called friends. I guess they never were my friends. People that don't talk to me anymore. But I've got other people who are talking to me. And they're black people. They're talking to me. They're curious. They want to know more now. And I think it's very important that I continue the momentum, that I don't stop. Because we did, I think we did make a difference because we did it. And I thank the people who play by the rules, pack for venturing out there to try to do it, to, to form, to forge a new reality uh, for politics in Illinois. I got a question, uh, follow-up question for you, but let's take a couple calls. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. D on the south side, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Um, my 100-year-old father has been a lifelong Republican. Uh, Mr. Thomas, I applaud you for the stance uh, you took. Um, you're absolutely right. Thank you. Uh, we cannot continue to be wedded to the Democratic Party. I did not vote for Pritzker this time or when he first ran. I just couldn't bring myself to vote for Darren Bailey. Uh, I've never been a, a Richard M. Daly supporter or Rahm Emanuel. We've just got to get smarter and learn how to broker and leverage our vote to get what we need. Right now, the Democrats, as far as some of the things they're talking about, are not offering us what we need. Thanks for the call, Dee. Uh, you, you mentioned, Charles, that you were um, you know, reticent to engage in partisanship because you hadn't done that before. Right. But um, uh, I noted uh, just what I saw on Twitter a lot of your former colleagues oh. not reticent at all, <laughs> and and it's an indication that they probably hadn't been reticent to be partisans for the entirety of their careers in Chicago media. I'm talking about the white leftists like Ron Majors and that sort of person. Yeah, well, you know, they they um, I think they assumed, and I think there's an assumption, generally speaking, in the media, and we just talked about that earlier uh, today, where the media is going, and they figure well. This guy is in the newsroom every day. He's our political reporter. They figured I was some another lefty like them, and I never have been. I mean, I've always seen virtue in what the right was saying. I know that, and there are issues that I, you know, I'm as I'm as right as ever, um, and all that those issues have always been there. But they there was an assumption on their part that I'm one of them because. I'm in the mix there. I'm the political reporter. I'm making the money and all that, that I got to be one of them. And I'm not. And if you express, if, if I would have had, had expressed that when I was working, I probably wouldn't have been working there very long uh, because that kind of thought process is not, uh, is not something you find in the newsroom. You've pretty much got to be down with the, 
you know, they weren't doing the pronoun thing and all the, you know, that, that, that movement and such and the real craziness that's happening there um, back when I was working. Because keep in mind, I'm, I'm about five years. In fact, in March, I'll be six years separated from the newsroom. So I figure I can do it now, right? I mean, I'm, I'm clear. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's an assumption. All well, those yeah. people you see on the news, they're, you know, they're a little bit. Well, well, we know. I mean, we know, you know, 90 percent of D.C. press corps votes for the Dem candidate right. for president every cycle. So, I mean, it's not like we don't know the composition of the press corps, both in Chicago as well as the larger press corps. But here's the thing, too. This, this would, would always sort of um, befuddles me. I mean, people like Ron Majors, just use him as an example because he's a good example of being a bad example. Uh, you know, I saw some of what he posted on Twitter I mean, it's just the, the patronizing tone of a Ron Majors, you know, basically telling you what the black experience is. I know, but they're doing that all over the country. Right I know, now. but 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 this is what I don't get. How does that not uh, generate, you know, a a reco- you know, a recoiling among the black electorate to listen to a bunch of rich white liberals in neighborhoods uh, where uh, certainly the struggle is not occurring? Uh, tell them what time it is in the black community. Don't you? I mean, don't you, do, do they look at people like that and say, you know, would you just shut up? I mean, or I, I'm disgusted by somebody like that trying to use me as a mascot. You don't know the first thing about me. You don't know the first thing about this. You can express your opinion. That's fine. But don't pretend that you're my spokesman or you're my chaperone. And that's the way they they behave. And that's the way they talk. And in the last six years, I've I've heard more white people tell me what's racist than right. I ever thought I would know after 72 years on this planet. I've had these white, like, like Ron G and what's his, what's his, Mark, Mark, Mark Greco. G and Greco. Right. He was calling me a sellout. I said, well, who did I sell out? You know, I mean, he, he tweeted that. <laughs> you sold him out. Yeah. He was upset about I sold it. him out. Right. Because, <laughs> you know, you're as, as a black man, you know, you're supposed to be down. With the Democrats, you know, all the time. That's the presumption that they make. And they're going to call other white people racist that I should not associate with, including you, my friend. Of course. Uh, you know, they, and I'm going like, what? You're telling me who I can associate with? It's this whole plantation piece, man. It is plantation politics all over again. The Democratic Party has a sordid history of racism. We know about that. I'm not going to you know, uh, do that again, but go there again. I don't have to because it's too, too documented. But now they're using race again. They used race in the 1930s when my father graduated from college. They were racist. They used it on up into the 60s. Now they're using it again. They're using racism to manipulate black people, to divide black people from white people and everybody else and and I'm telling you, it, it's so obvious to me what they're doing. They're using race to divide. In fact, the next great president of this country or the leader of this country is going to be somebody who can appeal to Ray Ray on the west side of Chicago and Billy Bob in Podunk, Alabama. When they can when they can get those two people to support that candidate, then we've got something in America. We're yeah, back that's together again. But, yeah, they're, yeah, but they are doing it. What, what about what about young black professionals? Because I know you've been 
working with young black professionals to essentially um you know generate this generate more independent thinking and have and develop more leaders within the black community that are not of the variety that we've seen for the past 50 years and i just i i wonder how optimistic you are because on the one hand you say well they're seeing the failures particularly in big cities and they're starting to ask questions on the other hand you see like the young black candidates for mayor cam buckner and uh, brandon johnson and and jamal green and you know they're of the same sort of variety generally mm-hmm. speaking uh, that we've seen from the elder race hustlers uh you 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 see the intellectuals like uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates or or uh, Ibram Kendi and it's it's the same thing just repackaged that we heard from Jesse and Al for the last 50 years so are you and, optimistic pessimistic somewhere in between well first of all let me deal with that we've heard because we're hearing from again that corrupt mainstream media right they're giving the attention to that to that whole thought process. Right. But I, I'm finding that younger people, they're listening, but they also are connected to corporate America in such a way that they're afraid. A lot of them are afraid to step out on faith. That is, that's a problem. And I, when I do it and I step out, you know, I, I'm, I'm fine. I mean, I don't have young children, I don't have a mortgage, I don't have the other stuff that can really confine you. And that that makes it difficult. But they'll tell me, they'll pull me aside and say, yeah, these are young people. They'll pull me aside, yeah, you know. But they've got to learn courage. They've got to learn courage. And that's a, that's a tough thing. A lot of people do. Yeah. All right, coming up at uh, 6.36, we're going to be talking to uh, Jim Uria about whether you should buy or sell into the forthcoming alien invasion. Dan, in for Amy is Charles Thomas, former ABC 7 political reporter, Chicago's Morning Answer. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM 560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan, and in for Amy J this morning, former ABC7 political reporter Charles Thomas. Uh, yesterday, uh, we tried to get an update on the situation with these uh, flying objects uh, in American airspace that uh, we continue to apparently need to shoot down. Um, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin was asked about his understanding of what the objects were and if any debris has been recovered, you know, since we know where they were shot down and ostensibly we have a beat on where some of the pieces landed. Mr. Secretary, have you been able to recover any part of the most recent three objects and why continue to call them objects? Are these not balloons? Well, uh, we're going to confirm what they are once we have collected the debris. But to answer your question, uh, we've not recovered any debris from the three most recent shootouts. It's inspiring a lot of confidence. Uh, National Security Council spokes being John Kirby, if that's actual John Kirby and not a reptilian humanoid who's assumed John Kirby's body. We don't know. We don't know at this point. He was asked about aliens. Of course he was, because that's the country we live in today. Um, my understanding is that uh, the top officials at the Pentagon 
when asked explicitly if uh, they were ruling out any kind of extraterrestrial presence, said they weren't ruling anything out. And yet at the beginning of today's briefing, albeit with her usual winning smile, uh, Ms. Jean-Pierre seemed to rule out any extraterrestrial activity. I don't um, think the American people need to worry about aliens with respect to these craft, period. I don't think there's any more that needs to be said there. Well, how do you know? We don't know anything. You're telling us you don't know anything, but you're telling us not to worry about aliens. And now we have all these, for the, the last year, all these like Pentagon files that seem to implicate um, the possibility of UFOs and which breeds this these unbelievable conversations about, you know, alien contacts. Um, who in the government has been anal probed by an extraterrestrial? We need to know, <laughs> Charles. I mean, it's only our national security. It's not a big deal uh, because the real scuttlebutt, of course, is that all of the objects that were shot down are part of a Chinese communist intel operation. And the real concern is not aliens, maybe outside of the D.C. press corps. It, 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 the real concern is not aliens, but um, very real Chinese communists. And Gordon Chang was on Tucker Carlson uh, offering this conclusion. Yes, they do, because it shows uh, cer certainly the Chinese balloon intrusion shows an utter disregard and disrespect for the United States by floating that over our most sensitive facilities. Um, and that really means that deterrence is now lost, which means the Chinese are probably going to do whatever they want, which means we're going to be in a very difficult situation, perhaps over the United States, but certainly in Asia as well. Yeah, there's nothing funny about that. For more on this as it impacts markets, please be joined by our friend Jim Urio, Fox Business Analyst and proprietor of Brant's Restaurant in Palatine. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dan. So um, alien invasion, buy into or sell into? I think you – I don't know that there's any – like in the old days, you know, you have these little sayings for every sort of thing, like buy main, go away, and buy it, sound of trumpets, sell it to sound of horns or get cannons, whatever. Um, there's nothing for alien invasions, so I'm going to decide to not worry about alien invasions. By the way, when I add something to this, too, is that you know, with the, with the uh, percentage of people who actually trust media right now being at 26%, which I believe is an all-time low, my, my get when I see a story that's unbelievably big – and is designed to capture the, the hearts and minds of the American people, I put my head in a swivel and think, what story are they trying to not get me to look at? Um, so I think the notion that these things either, uh, I'm going to say the, they're Chinese surveillance vehicles, which is fine, that seems to make a lot more sense to me. Uh, the second on the list would be that there's nothing even really happening at all, and we're just being, look at this hand while the other hand is in your pocket um, sort of thing. But again, Alien invasion. We don't have a blueprint for trading alien well, invasion. Put, I would say look, you're a Fox. You're a Fox business analyst. Put your tinfoil hat on and tune into their channels. <laughs> you know, I don't. I don't yeah, I, I don't just don't know. I get so confused about all of it. But I will say this for sure: alien invasion has got to be bullish because okay, let's say we, you know, we're re we're really shooting down aliens and and have um, access to new technologies, or they destroy us. In which case, who cares if you're along the stock market anyway? So I say it's like. It's it's a buy, in my opinion. How about that? All right. I mean, I, I essentially, you know, John Kirby, we don't need to worry about him. He didn't say they didn't exist. So maybe he's saying they come in peace. And uh, you're right. Yeah. We can open up new markets and new galaxies for our products. Or we're all doomed. And in which case, one of the two. richer than who. Yeah. yeah one of the two. Um, the, the, but the point that Gordon Chang makes about uh, China and, uh, and has been 
made by serious people, Mike McCall, the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, Air Force General, that we uh, could be in a position, a precarious position with respect to China and their designs on Taiwan. And this is an intel and a testing operation. And that's destabilizing. And that's not good for markets, particularly when you see stories about um, Fortune 500 CEOs are returning to uh, mainland China. Yeah, so this is actually a big market story because, remember, just flash back to 1980 when we had the same situation now, this cost-push inflation where you know uh, input costs were high, i.e. oil, is what was keeping inflation nasty and persistent. And part of the thing that happened over the next 20 years is we kicked open the door to global trade and we could access less expensive labor in, in the developing market. Now, we are moving absolutely in the opposite direction of that now. So every news story that comes out that's pointing a finger at China or China pointing a finger at us is making it less conducive to have this sort of global economy where every country takes advantage of the inexpensive advantages that other countries have. Now, this is a big deal, and this plays into the inflation story in a big way. So that when I read that, anything I read that accelerates the notion that China is less of our friend and more of our enemy, and I'm not saying the absolutist friend or enemy, just along that scale, to me is inflationary because it limits our ability to take advantage of what they can provide in the global marketplace. So I think it, this is an enormous deal. Uh, talking about inflationary, so report coming today, and um, some of the early indications are it's not going to be great news on the inflation front and the price front. Warehouses and distribution centers pushing rates higher with U.S. storage prices up 1.4% month over month and nearly 11% a year over year. Uh, and and suggestions from market analysts that inflation is stickier than was than was believed in some corners a month ago. And so on. so uh, this inflation report, the implications for today, the implications for Fed policy, how important that is, what Jay Powell decides to do in March and beyond. It's, it's a huge deal. It's, we're at an inflection point. Like I've been in this business for 35 years, and we always, every month, we just keyed on the unemployment report on the first Friday of every month. That's completely changed. The CPI number is by far the biggest what comes out today. And not just be, and everyone, people who know, you know, deep down, dig into the nuance of, of macroeconomics, know that the CPI number is not a very good number. It has a lot of flaws in calculation, but it doesn't matter because that's what the Fed looks at. So this CPI number is particularly important because it comes in the shadow of that unemployment number from two weeks ago that was way higher than people thought. The, way, the labor market giving signs that it was stronger. I personally think that that number was an illusion if you wanted to dig into that, but that's about an hour show. Um, it, but we have to see now if, if the labor market really is strong and then inflation is starting to pick back up again, well, that's a recipe for higher, uh, higher Fed aggressiveness in raising rates, and that should equal lower asset prices. I'm not of that camp. I think base cases, because I think the inflation that happened over the last couple of years was partly monetary and partly supply chain, and some of those things are beginning to work themselves out as well. And, um, and I think inflation is coming down, and I think we are going into some sort of recession, but I'm not an end-of-the-world type recession person. But I, I do think, paradoxically, that stocks could do well, because if we believe the Fed is done raising rates, meaning the economy is slowed enough for the Fed to be done raising rates, then the stocks don't have to worry as much about higher rates and people buy back into the stock market. So, I mean, buy on bad news is alive and well, and that's what I think my base case is. So, so what's your anticipation for the report today? You think 
I mean, it seems to be the telegraphing that the that you're going to see a, a tick up, and that's going to send people scrambling. But you don't think that that is, if if that is indeed the case, you don't think that's uh, something that persists or necessarily changes right. Fed policy beyond March. That's exactly what I believe. I believe the Fed is going two more 25 basis point hikes, and then they'll be done. And I believe what the market's telling me is that by the end of 2023 that the Fed could actually be easing rates, cutting rates. Um, you know, I think this is very interesting. Now, there's a little bit of a wild card of this, and that's the Lyle Brainerd moving from the Fed to getting an important economic position at the federal government. So if you are in, if you are the Joe Biden administration, and on one day you claim that you care about inflation and fighting inflation, and the next day you appoint Lyle Brainerd to an important economics position within your administration, it, it means you do not care one bit about inflation. She's always been an uber dove favoring low interest rates, profligate spending. And with this notion of modern monetary theory, I don't know if you know what it is, is that oh, yeah. if you see inflation, you quickly raise taxes. It's the most asinine theory I've ever heard in my life. And she's a devotee of that. So this is something, this is like Beck putting, you know, Bobby Kennedy in charge of, you know, uh, investigating the mob when in fact, you know, <laughs> yeah, the Kennedy family is the mob. Okay. So this is what our government occasionally does have craft fund the Food and Drug Administration, things like that. I love when they put the fox in charge of the hen house and they pretend like they're doing us a favor. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So, 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 so does this even matter? I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday and about, and this was after a conversation we had with John Tammany from Real Care Markets, you know, who's very um, persnickety uh, in terms of how you talk about inflation and so on and so forth and what markets will do and what kind of impact long term the Fed has on markets and and you know, basically, I, I just I just come away at this day for, from these talks about the market these days, basically saying, okay, the whole thing is rigged, and basically, I just need to be lucky enough to fall on the right side of Ken Griffin's arbitrages, and I'll do okay. <laughs> okay, I think I think you get it now. Yes. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. And just to, to underscore that point too, and I'm not making any allegations, but I'm saying this: I've been in the business for 35 years. The last two CPI reports approximately two to three minutes before the report came out, several markets moved in big directions that would have been commensurate with the person making those trades knowing what the CPI report would be. So that's just on a micro level to, to say that there might be leaks. And I'm not saying there's leaks. I'm saying that if you're the uh, SEC or the FBI, uh, call me. I can help you investigate because it is unusual that someone would try to move a big block of things two to three minutes before the major report of the month, perhaps the year. Um, so, yeah. And again, now we're talking about inflation, too. And food and energy are stripped out of the CPI, the things we buy every day. They also, one of the reasons they're stripped out of the CPI for the core is that they're the things that are least responsive to interest rate hikes and probably even the least responsive, well, not the least responsive to global activity. But um, the, the point is, is that those things are affected more by regulation and taxes and things that the actual government is putting upon these companies to make it more difficult for them to deal. And and that inflation is going to stay relatively high. And they sit back and they come on TV and tell us, yeah, we're doing our best to fight inflation. And then they pass a ridiculous bill like the Inflation Reduction Act, which was one of the most inflationary pieces of legislation I've seen in a long time. So the whole thing is absolutely maddening, to your point. And again, sometimes you have to rely on luck or just rely on a healthy dose of cynicism for everything you read in here. Yeah, well, don't count on the FBI. They're too busy targeting uh, Catholics who go to the Latin Mass. They don't have time for people <laughs> yeah, manipulating the markets. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Jim, By the way, I'm not accusing anybody. No, of course not. No, of course not. You're just, just you're describing a bank robbery, but it doesn't mean anybody's robbing a bank. 
I want to be clear about that. that. <laughs> Does not mean that. Jim Urio, Fox Business Analyst, proprietor of Brant's Restaurant in Palatine. Jim, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Thank you. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Your show keeps me alive during the week. There's nobody I'd rather listen to between 5 and 9 in the morning than you guys. On AM 560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM 560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan, and in for Amy J. This morning is former ABC7 political reporter Charles Thomas. Good morning. Morning. And, Charles, have you uh, taken a look at the uh, 1619 project as uh, as uh, pr- uh, memorialized on Hulu? They've got a video series now in addition ha- you to know, their editorial I see it, series. I see it advertised, but I haven't watched it. Mm-hmm. I, I will. It's a project. Uh, Bob Woodson and um, a colleague of his, of his, Bill Chambra, write in the Wall Street Journal about uh, the 1619 Project, the Hulu version of it, the televised version of it. Well, I've, I've read it. You've read I the New York Times 1619 it. Project. Yeah. Yeah. And your thoughts, generally speaking? Well, generally speaking, I mean, it, it is a um, it, 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 I, I think it's it's another way of looking at the history um, I don't I, my, my problem with it, it's very negative and it doesn't celebrate how far we've come from 1619 in the positive way that that's my uh, it, it's one of my pet issues, if you will. We should be celebrating what we have accomplished in race relations as opposed to using it as a burden on today. We we should we should be proud of how far we've come uh, since 1619, and well, you that, can you can interpret it that way. But a lot of people are using it to interpret it in a negative way that it will never change, it will never will never reach uh, Valhalla uh, in terms of race relations in the United States, and I, I think that's uh, that's tragic. And, and and some people are using it to uh, fit their own narrative and their own purposes and their own agendas. Yeah, like Nicole Hannah-Jones in the New York Times, um, <laughs> uh, for starters. But you're flying in formation with Bob Woodson. There's no question about that. Uh, although, in addition to being incomplete, the history as presented by Nicole Hannah-Jones in the New York Times is also erroneous, but we'll get to that. For more on the topic, please be joined by the aforesaid Bob Woodson, founder and president of the Woodson Center, author of Red, White, and Black, Rescuing American History from Revisionists and Race Hustlers. Bob, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Dan. Always a pleasure. So, um, you know, basically, uh, Charles is uh, in tune with you on the complete history of black Americans, including the success stories. Why should we know, as you and uh, Mr. Schromber wrote about, why should we know about covert township Michigan? Well, we should know, as, 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 as you were saying, that you cannot tell what a person's net worth is until you look at their assets versus their liabilities. But if you were to just look at their liabilities, you said these people are in bad shape. Uh, and so it's important. To, and 
And so, as you were saying, that America should never be defined solely by its birth defect of slavery. None of us should be defined by the worst of what we were in the past, that America is a country of redemption. And so we should be looking at what our liabilities were, but what were our assets? What did we accomplish in the face of oppression? And Covert, Michigan is an example of American exceptionalism. This was a town founded uh, right after slavery by some free blacks and whites, uh, and, and whites came there, and they had a town that was never segregated. Jim Crow never found a nest in, in Colbert, Michigan, and people lived there. The schools were integrated. The churches were integrated. Uh, blacks successfully ran for public office when they legally could not hold those offices. And so we need to be talking about Colbert, Michigan. Uh, interracial couples came from all over the country because they knew it was a safe haven. Uh, this is as much a part of American history as the slavery of Jim Crow. Um, and so it is important for us to, to be accurate and complete in the telling of the American story. And um, the 1619 Project and sort of just the, the zeitgeist that surrounds Black History Month every year um, focuses on the on you know, the problems that still persist as well as the persecution of the past, and they link the two. And some would argue, well, um, yes, it's great. Those stories that Bob is talking about are great stories, but they don't address the problems of today and how they relate back to yesterday, and we still need to have a reckoning with the past persecution so that we can solve today's problems. That's an absolute uh, distortion of the fact. I mean, First of all, the, the problems that we're facing is they have high un, unemployment, out of wedlock, first violence in these communities. That is not rooted in slavery or Jim Crow. And in our essays, 1776, on our essays, we go back and we, we prove it. And in fact, the, the, uh, the kind of violence that you're witnessing has never been a part of the American saga for blacks. Um, when I was born during the Depression, and the marriage rate among blacks was the highest of any group in society. Elderly people could walk safely in their communities without fear of being assaulted by their grandchildren. Children were not shot in their, their, their cribs the way they are today. So, so what we're witnessing today is not a legacy of slavery. In this country. It's the legacy of, of programs starting in the 60s. All of these declines, the, the disintegration of the black families, all started in, in the 60s with government intervention into the marketplace, separating work from income, and, and, and the decline started to occur at that point. So it's important for us to embrace truth-based facts. Otherwise, as someone said, lies will become normal, and lies are becoming normal. And, uh... I, don't, I, I grew up in that, during the Depression, Dan. I never heard a gunfire. In a low-income black neighborhood, I never heard a gunfire. How many kids could say that today? They know of four or five friends who were killed. So how can you say that's a legacy of slavery and discrimination when it did not occur during segregation? And it's very difficult when you when you have, um, I mean, I have grandchildren who um, who are bombarded with negativity uh, at school with their friends. And man, I have to, you, you know, I try to intervene 
you know, and, and, and with them. But this is a very, it's a real problem, uh, I, I believe, for families in terms of what their, their children are hearing about who they are and where their, their people, their families have been over the years. And we have to, we have, it, it's really hard work to try to fix that. It really is, but the issue is goes beyond just racial reckoning. There's, I don't even know what that means. All I know is recent studies from the Center for Disease Control said almost 20% of all young people man, either attempted suicide or or have uh, and contemplated committing suicide. So we have a moral and spiritual crisis that is consuming children out in Appalachia who are dying of drug, a prescription drug. Kids in Silicon Valley with a suicide rate of six times the national average and inner city kids are dying of homicide. So, but by always focusing on race, it's a distraction. It prevents us from coming together as a, as a, as a nation and address the crisis facing our children. It's a crisis of meaning. It's a crisis of, 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 what, what, of, of, of devaluing their lives. When you devalue your life, you're willing to take yours or someone else's. That's the crisis that we need to face, but we will never get there if we're always involved in this tribal conflict around race. So then that also means that we can't fall for the uh, the, the, the idea that we can pay our way out of this. Um, I'm talking about reparations. Your uh, friend and colleague, Glenn Lowry, econ professor at Brown University uh, took up the issue of reparations recently just because there's so many you know, committees that are studying the issue and coming up with different amounts on the West Coast uh, program in Evanston, Illinois, you know, to talk about this all over. This is the next frontier. And, uh, you know, his point is essentially as soon as you agree to reparations, you're going to have the same people come back and you say, don't you dare think you can just pay your way out of this. So we're going to be right back to where we were if you think that you can just uh, accede to the demands of what I would term the race hustlers. You really do. They, they, their goal really isn't reparation. The goal is to keep black America in a state of aggrievement and, 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 and turmoil um, because then people are easily manipulated. Someone said that white Southerners looked at black people as property. Progressives look at them as pawns. They're willing to sacrifice black bodies for black votes. And that's what, why they have to keep a constant um, attitude, uh, keep a, a constant aggrievement na- a narrative going. So that there's constant agitation, there's constant anger. The, the more they attack the police, the more the police withdraw from these communities, the, the, the larger the problem gets and the more they can then benefit and profit from this uh, agreement. You mentioned uh, we have a, a, a crisis of, of conscience, of spirit. Um, there's a, a redemption that needs to happen individually, not along racial lines. And this has really been your life's work as a guy of the neighborhoods, the neighborhoods of all races. And I, I wish you'd speak to that because, you know, we're in the throes of a mayoral race here in Chicago, as you know. And the talk from virtually all the candidates is about 
how this program and that program and another program and expanding existing program is going to solve violence, education, um, economic independence, going to solve all these problems. We're just not, quote unquote, investing enough in the neighborhoods and our people and our institutions and so on and so forth. But your approach over your 60 years plus years doing it has been to um, look at the individual and what is broken in the individual um, and uh, and try to address that. And I just uh, wish you would speak to that a little bit, the, the real community organizer versus the community organizer that just is a, um, uh, you know, a, an ambassador of the state. I spent a lot of time in low-income neighborhoods. In fact, I just addressed a group of black professionals in terms of addressing these problems. And they asked me, Bob, what is it that we as a people can do to begin to to repair what's broken. And the first thing I said, and they exploded in applause, I said, you need to stop whining about white folks, what they have done to you in the past and what they're going to do to you and address the enemy within. Leave them out of the room. Let's just talk about solutions that if we were able to accomplish peace and, and civil order in the midst of Jim Crow, why can't we do it today? And they exploded in applause to that line. Hello, Bob. So, oh, sorry. So so that the answers are in the community. And every time when I meet with groups, and I do it every week, low-income groups, all they talk about is their brokenness and what their pathway was towards overcoming their brokenness. And so we've got young people who were ex-gang members whose lives have been redeemed, and they are reaching out. And we've got one neighborhood where there has not a single gun has been fired in a year because— Young adults have gone in and become surrogate fathers and big brothers to these. And we saturated a community with, with these community antibodies and, and health resulted. So we need to look at these islands of civil order that have been created around the country and, 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 and invest in them and invest in strategies that heals from the inside out. That's where the investment needs to occur. It has nothing to do with politics or ideology or race. It has everything to do with making people who are broken um, agents of their own uplift. Bob, That's what we need to invest in. Bob, what's going to happen to the call for reparations when America no longer has a white majority, that when white people are a minority and you have people, Asians, Latinos, people, from all over the world's different nationalities who had nothing at all to do with um, American slavery. I mean, what, what's going well, to happen to the call for reparations? Well, now? first of all, I think it's going to be dismissed. When you look at figures, about 20 percent of all children are attempting suicide. Uh, it, it's going to, it's gonna, uh, uh, I think, just crowd out that stupid argument. Of, uh, first of all, you had three blacks who owned slaves. Do their descendants pay? You have Native Americans. Uh, who owned slaves on the Trail of Tears. They took 3,000 of them on the Trail of Tears. Do they pay? I mean, it's just a ridiculous uh, subject that we waste a lot of time on when people are dying. Look, first of all, look at people who win the lottery. Go look at 80% of them. What happens to them? Bankrupt. Mm. Yep. I wish our problem were money, you know. It isn't. 
Well, that's why I, I love the reference. I mean, I don't love this as the fact, but I love the reference to bring in Silicon Valley. I mean, it reminds me of the James Earl Jones line from Field of Dreams, right? It's money they have and peace they lack. Um, that, that the suicide rate is so heightened in Silicon Valley. So it really speaks to the idea that it's a spiritual uh, uh, broken, a spiritual bankruptcy, not a, not a financial one. And all the talk in our politics um, is about more money for this and more money for that, as if the you know, more, more material uh, wherewithal is the path to fixing what's broken. Exactly. You don't hear people. I'm, Dan, I spent a lot of time in low-income communities. And I never hear issues of racism come up. I never hear reparations ever mentioned. No one's confused about their pronouns. <laughs> you know, I don't see any of these issues. These are discussions and dialogue among the elite. There's nothing to do with people on the ground who are worried about whether or not they're going to lose a second son or a third son. That's what's taking up their time. People who are sitting around talking about reparations are, as, as Delano Squires, one of my young colleagues, said, they're guilty white people are seeking absolution from crimes they never committed, and entitled blacks are seeking absolution from injustice they never suffered. <laughs> Bob Woodson, founder and president of the Woodson Center, uh, founder as well of 1776 Unites, author of Red, White, and Black, Rescuing American History from Revisionists and Race Hustlers. Bob, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dan, as always. And he joined us on the turnkey.pro answer line. You're listening to Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Insert Democrat Socialist here. Runs the Democratic House law for 30 plus years running. He's promising this and he's stealing that. Where can you get that kind of money? He's using your house like his own piggy bank. Gang, 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 gang. You ought to know by now. You can pay off your house here in Illinois. But you can never keep up with the taxes. Oh, how it's always been the plan To have a taxpayer pay, no doubt Not a matter of if anymore but when You're moving out I said, when you're moving out Top of the morning, Dan, and in frame me this morning, Charles Thomas, former ABC7 political reporter. Um, since there was a mayoral candidate forum for black issues last night huh um i I will get to that in a second and that uh, combined with this uh, terrible campus shooting in michigan state where three people were murdered and i guess five injured they've identified the shooter who apparently died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound i said we're going to talk about guns i've already seen the uh, eva perone of east lansing gretchen whitmer before the cameras (laughs) talking about guns this uh, new uh, working paper from uh, a couple of few academics, actually, from Cal Berkeley and University of Chicago. You know, two havens for MAGA gun nuts. They find, since we'll hear renew calls for quote unquote assault weapon bans like was passed in Illinois, they find in their uh, paper. We find that bans or restrictions that specifically target quote unquote assault weapons 
increased demand for handguns, which are associated with the vast majority of firearm-related violence. But just do something, right? Just do something. That's what I'm sure you heard, although I didn't watch all of it, from the mayoral candidates at the NBC-sponsored candidate forum for black issues. Uh, Charles, uh, will WTTW be hosting a candidate forum for white issues? That would be appropriate, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, uh, what, 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 just what about that? I mean, I, I'm not going to touch may, that one. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm being too uh, hypersensitive. Well, yeah. But candidate form for black issues. Well, are, are black issues different than white issues, different than Latino issues and Asian issues? Well, you know, on some level, yes. Okay. Uh, I, I mean, I think um, some of the issues are different. I mean, they are, I think, more, more impactful in the black community. Well, the, problem, the, the problem is they didn't talk about a lot of them are the most important ones. They didn't right. talk about uh, this whole crime piece uh, enough uh, as it pertain as it pertains to black people. I mean, black people are the most victimized by crime. Yes, but but our children are committing most of the crime. See, this is something that we don't we don't want to talk about. That the fact that the vast majority of, for instance, carjackings are committed by young black men. Uh, we don't want to go there because that's racist. Well, but that's sort of that's sort of that's sort of fact. my point. Well, that's sort of my point is yeah. to say, yeah, I understand that crime is more pronounced in the predominantly black neighborhoods, and that's unfortunate, and maybe that calls for special focus. But I mean, public safety is not a racial issue. Education is not a racial issue. Economic opportunity is not a racial issue. It shouldn't be. It doesn't have to be. So there, the different communities, if you arbitrarily categorize people by race, uh, have. Uh, different levels of challenge but the idea that there's singularly black issues or white issues or latino issues but here's the list Dan, Dan. that you know, we talked about this briefly yesterday and it caused some uh, little uh, you know flurry of uh, phone calls and such the breakdown of the black family yeah we're not nobody wants to talk about that that is they don't even talk about that in in church man in in black churches that that i attend regularly they're not talking about that. They're, they're, they're as if it doesn't exist when this is at the root, which Bob Woodward just said, uh, Bob, he, Bob Woodson just said, you know, is, is again at the core of a lot of the problems. We have to find a way to restore the black family. Now, whether you do that through programs of, of whatever, because they spend enough money on programs, but we, we have to begin to focus there and, Two-parent families, I believe you. Ha- the more two-parent families you have, the less poverty, the less crime you have. That's but just, when, that's just what, what the two, data says. Yeah, yeah, that, that's the data, but, but nobody wants to focus on that. And, well, our, and, and that's, I think, the biggest problem. And last night, uh, I didn't watch the whole debate. I, I couldn't. I, um, but there was, no fo- there was no focus on that. And we got mm-hmm. six black people up there running for for mayor and nobody wants to call out this problem and say what they can do in their capacity as mayor not they can't do everything but what they can do in their capacity as mayor to address that problem which will affect i believe deeply will affect the crime problem and the poverty problem well our next guest uh, has addressed that in a piece at wirepoints.org with his colleague Matt Rosenberg. Ted Dabrowski, president of Wirepoints joins us now. Ted, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Hi, good morning Dan, good morning Charles. Good morning Ted. Uh, yeah, yeah. Good morning. Yeah, good to talk to you Charles. Long time. 
right. you know, it's fascinating. And, and to have to go after Bob Woodson is always tough because I, I love Bob Woodson. I'm so happy you give him a voice. He's 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 an amazing voice for for America and for what you know what needs to change. But uh, yeah, you know, we argue that these things, these issues, are are absolutely ignored. Uh, yeah, you know, guys like like Vallis and, and and Willie Wilson will touch on them, but nobody's leaning into these issues, and these issues need to be discussed. And uh, yeah, the risk of being called racist and all kinds of other names, we're going to bring it up because the data is overwhelming. And you know, we love data at Wirepoints, uh, but it's overwhelming what the problems are, and uh, yeah, there's a lot that needs to be solved. Well, well, lay some data on us. Well, you know, and this is the scary part, and, and you know, there's there's a question you just asked Dan about whether there's a difference between blacks and the other races. Um, things like unwed births, they become a problem for all races. You've got in, in Waukegan, you've got in Rockford, you've got in Decatur, more than 50% of all white births are to unwed mothers. But the problem is, is much more acute when you look at blacks, right? It's, it's 82% in Chicago. It's over 90% in Waukegan. So you've got a, you've got a black problem that the numbers are more acute. Uh, education, we talked about the kids not being able to read. You know, one out of 10 black kids in CPS can't, only only one out of 10 can read. Only one out of 20 can do math. Uh, we got some really bad results for whites and Latinos too, but the black numbers are acute. And so there has to be a discussion about certain policies, what we're doing, uh, the culture, family, uh, values. Those things are ignored. You know, the whole thing of merit and accomplishment and excellence it's gone for many communities, and we need to bring it back. And that lead, that means leadership uh, from the mayoral candidates. It's a bully pulpit. You can't do everything at the mayor's office, but you sure as hell can use your bully pulpit to try to change the state-level things. Well, uh, speaking of education in Chicago, um, you put together this other piece looking at uh, schools. I mean, it's just sort of in the, the acute cases. There are 30 schools in Illinois, but the list is dominated by Chicago where there is not a single student reading at grade level, not a single one. And obviously when you add up 30 schools, you're talking about uh, thousands of kids. There are 53 schools in Illinois dominated by Chicago where not a single student is doing math at grade level, not a single one. And again, talking about thousands of students. And overall, um, when you're talk, you talk about um, – 18% of the schools in the state, only one out of 10 kids can read at grade level. A quarter of the schools in the state, only one out of 10 kids can do math at grade level. So, I mean, you, you have, you know, a, a quarter, let's say, one-fifth to a quarter of students in school right now who are in real trouble because they're just not, are not going to have the wherewithal to find success in life. Yeah, I mean, there's just there's no way to talk about this. <clears throat> the numbers are phenomenal. Zero kids able to read in a whole bunch of schools. Zero kids able to do math in a whole bunch of schools. And you're talking about some schools that spent a lot of money. You know, there's this one that we talked about recently, Douglas Academy. It's one of those zero, uh, sorry, it's one of those empty, failing schools. It's got the capacity for 900 kids. There's only 44 there. They're spending $56,000 a student. And this is all State Board of Education data. This is not my data. It's their data. And yet zero, you know, it's zero. It's not zero percent. It's zero kids can read. Um, what are we doing, right? It's, it's uh, you know, Glenn Lowry from, from you know, Chicago, Chicago Southside Raised, um, who's a, just a super person talking about these issues, 
you know, basically just said, look, you know, there's, there's no, nobody has time now for kids you know, in a global economy where we have all this competition. We got lots of things going on. Nobody has time for kids who can't read and who can't write. What's going to happen to them? And, and does anybody care? And that's, that's my question for all this data that we're putting out. Does anybody care about this? Will anybody cover it? Will anybody try to fix it? We don't see anything yet from, uh, from our coverage of what we've done to hearing either Lightfoot or Pritzker or any of the elite say what they're going to do about this. In fact, all Governor Pritzker did was nominate Tony Sanders from Elgin, who has even worse results in the state level. He's now the new superintendent for the state. Makes no sense. So, so, so Ted, how, how does school choice help change those outcomes? Well, I, I think school choice you know, has a lot to do with, with giving people the freedom to, to, to just choose something better than what they've got. You know, you've got, if you talk about the schools I just talked about, these 30 schools where they can't read and 53 schools where they can't do math. And, you know, the list is much longer when you talk about, as, as Dan just pointed out, uh, the list is much longer where kids can't perform. Give them, a, give parents, those, those engaged parents, those engaged grandparents, those engaged uncles, whoever, whoever wants to take charge, give them a, a choice to go somewhere else. Because if they can't go somewhere else, They'll just leave Chicago. They'll just leave Illinois because there are other opportunities in other states. Um, but but, it, but but you know, school choice is one thing, Charles. But I, I also you know, as, as we wrote this paper and we talk about the unwed births and the, and the and the broken families, a lot of it starts first with you know having parents that are engaged, making sure that, that there's a family unit, right? Before we have children, have have a you know be married, have a family unit, because when we see that parents get engaged with their children's reading. There's a lot more success. And, and uh, I, when you don't have a family structure, it just doesn't work. Yeah, and, and I, I think what I'm doing here, I'm, I'm basically begging for for I want people to understand that if black people, black parents can choose better schools for their children, they don't get trapped in these uh, places that don't that don't deliver any uh, any positive outcomes. And that's what's happening. A lot of these kids who can't read when they graduate high school or can't. Uh, do math at, at grade level at fourth grade level when they graduate they 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 must have some choice to to change those outcomes and right now they have no choice uh, and 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 it, so i believe school choice is an issue black people have to address and going back to the democrat republican di- problem or situation the republicans are talking about school choice the democrats are not so Black people, let's get involved in that conversation. That's all. That's all I'm asking. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, Charles, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's no doubt. I think that school choice is, is one of the things. It's not a silver bullet, but it's one of the one of the many tools that, that need to be used. Uh, but but I think you know it also ties. People have to understand, and part of helping the black community, Latino community, and white community understand that this CPS and the Illinois they don't tell the truth. And you just said it. You know, you know they have a fourth grade reading ability. And yet Pritzker and Lightfoot celebrate record graduation rates for these kids as if they've done them a favor and, and castigate out, and, unable to read and, and celebrate their graduation. It's a lie. And, and then and then castigate, try to come over the top with moral indignation like Lightfoot did at that uh, Union League Club debate um, with Mike Flannery when he pressed her on truancy rates and you know, these graduation rates and, oh, you're, you're all negativity around CPS and it's not what I see every day and this and that, you know, that sort of um, papering over 
this criminal enterprise called the Chicago Public School System that robs children and families every single day. Yeah, and, and they call it insulting, Dan. They say, yeah, they're you're insulted. insulting me. They're insulted. Like, you know, we, uh, right. Well, I'll insult you all day. I mean, right. you, could, you could be insulted all you want. What's insulting, what's, what's tragic, and what's unconscionable is the numbers that Ted is recounting. And that's, right. they a, just need, they need, they need more distribution, clearly. And as a black man, I am embarrassed. I am embarrassed by it. It should not be happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, I went to all black schools when I came up, and they were controlled by black people. The principal's black. All well, the, is- there was segregation. I get that. But we had control of our school, and it was a good school. Those people taught me that I was smart. They said, you can do anything you want to do. That's what they did, it, 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 because we controlled our own segregated school in our own segregated neighborhood. I'm not saying going back to that. I'm saying control your school, parents. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, it, it used yeah. to be. It used to be that you would say anybody can succeed, right? I don't care where you're from, and and, and kids did, and, and and we see that from from well, we saw what happened with family incomes for blacks, and you know things things got a lot better for lots of them, but for a whole bunch of people, they're stuck in a place like CPS. They're stuck under under a system where they pass them through. And this is what drives me crazy about, about Lightfoot and others. They, they will not challenge them. And any candidate, frankly, you have to challenge the fact that kids are passed from one grade to the next and they can't read and they can't count. And, and until we challenge that, you know, I think that if I, I would love to hear one of the candidates say that their obsession is going to be that they're going to take CPS from, you know, let's start with blacks, we can go to Latinos and whites. We're going to get kids right now. It's one out of 10 black kids can read. We're going to make it three out of 10 in one year and seven out of 10 in, in two years or whatever it is, whatever crazy metric you want to go for. That's what they should be saying, because they should obsess about reading, because if a kid can't read, it's over, especially in today's world, especially when literacy and, and, and numeracy, right, technology and all that. If you can't read and do math, it's over. So let's get an obsession about that and drop a lot of the other subjects. He is Ted Dabrowski, president of WirePoints, wirepoints.org, all things Illinois policy-related. Ted, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. And he joined us on the Turnkey.pro Answer Line. If you're talking about it, Dan and Amy are talking about it. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan, and in for Amy J. This morning is former ABC7 political reporter Charles Thomas. And it seems like uh, our conversations uh, this morning with, um, <clears throat> excuse me, Bob Woodson and Ted Dabrowski about um, societal ills have been leading us to this moment with Spencer Clavin. He is the editor of the Claremont Institute and author of How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. That's uh, released today, Valentine's Day. Well, it's ironic. I would think mm-hmm. we'd be talking about the Epicurean lifestyle, eschewing things like love and chocolate. But um, no, it's released today on Valentine's Day. How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. Spencer Clavin, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. 
So, um, you know, thinking about the West, I, I can't help but to go back time and again to this observation that was made by the Roman historian Livy about a decade before the Roman Republic fell, in which he described the fundamental problem in the Republic as a populace that could neither confront its ills or their cures. Is that is that where we are in the West? Well, as you mentioned, you know, it seems as if all we hear about these days is just ill after ill confronting America and therefore more broadly the West. I certainly think there's a portion of the population that just wants to look away, that wants to, you know, imagine this stuff is going to go away, that the debt is just going to magically dissolve or, you know, all of our uh, problems overseas are going to calm down without our doing anything about them. But at the same time, I actually also think that there are a fair few people out there, and I, I talk to them a lot, who do want some sort of guidance for how to fix these problems, how to be involved in fixing these problems. But what they really feel is despair. Like, they don't know where to start. It's The problems are so big, and we feel so small that uh, a lot of folks are kind of casting about for some route forward that makes any sense at all. Um, and that's kind of why I wrote the book. You know, the, the truth of the matter is it can feel very disorienting as if these problems are all new. But in point of fact, as you just alluded to, um, there have been civilizations that have gone through some of these issues before, great thinkers and statesmen who have risen up to address them. And it, if we can dig deep into those texts, we'll find that we're actually not alone. We do have guidance from the wisdom traditions that come down to us from Athens and Jerusalem. And even though things do look grim, um, we, we never have cause for despair, because ultimately, even the Roman Republic, when it fell, had produced the fruits of its civilization, which would lead in uh, eventually to the birth of, of this nation, among other right. things. So, you know, we are carrying that tradition forward, even though uh, times can look grim, for sure. Well, I mean, um, yeah, we have the advantage over the Romans that we can just cede our sovereignty to the metaverse, and uh, right. and that should clear everything sure. up. Um, mm -hmm. Talk, I think that's one of them. Talk about um, the modern crises we face and how we should think about, uh, well, whichever one you you uh, want to elevate. That's absolutely right. I mean, I begin the book with the metaverse because. Um, you know, I think it speaks to a very profound anxiety that we're having, a crisis of reality, um, this feeling like maybe it would just be better to check out of it all. And that actually speaks to the quote you mentioned from, from Livy, right, the kind of offer that is on the table, you know, this problem in the real world, um, why don't we just kind of reinvent the real world, remake the real world. Um, and one of the things that I show is that this is a very, very ancient Offer, You know, it goes back in, in some sense to Athens and to the sophists, who were the philosophers that were kind of there before Socrates. And, and when Socrates really began the tradition of Greek philosophy as it comes down to us, um, it was by planting a flag and saying, no, in fact, you know, true and false, real and unreal, they're not just matters of personal opinion. It's not just my truth, your truth. Um, there's actually something out there that is true no matter what. Um, and uh, reinvesting in the here and now in the physical world, um, even though, uh, of course, you know, the metaverse technology is very shiny. There are people that are kind of into it. I, I also think, you know, there's a lot of hunger for real world engagement, for uh, community building. Some of the stuff you're seeing, for instance, out in Florida, people going to the 
school boards and actually taking action in their communities. Um, I think the way forward is actually the opposite direction from the metaverse. It's more deep into the here and now, into embodied life and the real world. Uh, one of the other things I was thinking about um, in, in thinking about your book is this, uh, ironically, uh, it's not. This is you know, some uh, responding to this um, sort of philosophical um, uh, piece that you've put together with uh, mm. something from Hollywood. But but it's it's yeah. uh, it's an interview that Sylvester Stallone gave shortly after Rocky was made and became a hit. So late seventies, and uh-huh. he and he basically says you know like he was just asked, well, what was the inspiration for the movie and. And why did you, who is a nobody, think you could play the lead role? And then talked about how it got made and so forth. But he basically said he surveyed the artistic landscape at the time, and it was all very dreary. This is, right, the era of stagflation and coming out of Watergate. And, and people were down on America, and what the arts were producing a lot of nihilistic crap. And so he just thought, I, thought, I think, uh, you know, uh, Americans could use a story— that is typically American, you know, an underdog mm. story, a guy from the neighborhood through his own grit and determina- determination and a yielding spirit is able to, you know, uh, spoiler alert, um, you, 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 you know how it ends. Um, oh, and, yeah, and, I've seen the movie. And, <laughs> yeah. And so and so that was that was what it sort of inspired him. And I wonder if mm. um, we're not sort of in the same place, certainly when I go to art houses uh, over the last decade, it's been a lot of nihil, and, and since Trump got elected in particular, it's been a lot of nihilistic crap. And I wonder, uh, maybe if if that's part of it too, is responding to the fatalism and the mm-hmm. darkness that is emanating from the art community with something like a, you know, more modern versions of these uplifting stories that speak to what we hope is our fundamental character as a nation. Oh, that's such a smart point. I mean, there's nothing wrong with bucking up the troops, because after all, I mean, why shouldn't we have hope? It's not as if the world has never gone through difficult times, difficult periods. I mean, even just as you make reference to the 70s, you know, you don't even have to dig back into ancient history. Um, C.S. Lewis, the great Christian apologist, who himself lived through two world wars and moments that certainly uh, seemed as, as bleak as anything we've seen, um, he had this beautiful observation about the medieval era that they always seem to be looking back into the past, whereas in our modern society, we're always kind of looking ahead into the future. What's going to happen next? What's the new tech going to do? Um, the medievalists were, were much more concerned with the past, and they always seemed to feel as if the past was better than the present. There was some glorious, you know, uh, golden age, and things had kind of fallen from there. Um, and yet, they, they never despaired. This was not a gloomy kind of attitude that they had. Um, it was actually a hopeful one, because by looking back into the past and understanding that there were, uh, there were good things, in their history. There, was a, there were roots to their civilization uh, that weren't foul, weren't rotten. Um, then they could have hope for the future, for where they were going. And one of the features of our modern discourse, as you're kind of alluding to, is this just incessant gloom about our origins, especially America's origins. You know, the 1619 Project, racism is in America's DNA. It's sort of threaded into our very being to be evil. And that kind of misery, that ceaseless insistence on despair, um, I think it's sickening. I think a better and truer narrative about ourselves is, of 
course, we're fallen. Of course, things have gone wrong. Of course, we're broken. And yet, in fact, our civilization is good. The roots of it are worth recovering. Uh, the good, the true, and the beautiful is embodied and passed down to us in the wisdom literature of Athens and Jerusalem. And America remains the best product of the West to date. So, you know, the, yeah, of course we've got problems. But this ceaseless despair, you're absolutely right. What's the point of it except to cause people to throw out their hands? Uh, better by far to celebrate our origins and look hopefully toward the future. Uh, what about the, I mean, uh, this is something that's time immemorial, too, because hubris is a, a affliction of the human condition. But but the, uh, you know, the idea that we can fix things, we can bend, I mean, technically fix things. We can bend the mother nature to our will. We can stop a virus from spreading. Uh, we can uh, eradicate poverty. I mean, all these things that we think we can do through the the through the force of our good intentions as um as spoken through a government program of some sort, um, how do you how do you see that as a as a challenge in modern times? Yeah, absolutely. You're right that it's old, it's ancient. This impulse to find a mathematical equation that's going to cash out in terms of you know all the perfect answers to all the questions, and you know, and it's modern form, this really goes back to the capital P progressive movement, I think, with this idea that you know you can kind of build a machine that's going to make uh, representative government obsolete. You're going to just, you know, write the equation, trust the science, um, and get all of your answers from some kind of clerical authority. It's really ultimately a religious impulse. It's an article of faith that these mathematical models are going to shave away all the rough edges of the world. It's never it worked. It's never proven true. The great disproof of it is the Soviet Union and the terror of the gulag. We know where this stuff leads. And so it's just a kind of religion to say that what we're going to do is we're going to write a mathematical equation, we're going to do the science, um, and that's going to solve all our problems. And then we're not going to have to make reference to those messy people, you know, the people with their prejudices and their backwards looking views, you know, those, those deplorables. Well, the classical tradition of political philosophy does offer another way out here. It's to say, you know, actually, it's true that math and science exist. They can answer some questions, questions about the physical world. But when it comes to ethics and to morals, there is no mathematical equation. There's only the shaping and the molding of the human soul by the great traditions of the wisdom literature. And the thing about it is, you know, it's, it's called phronesis in, in Greek, this idea of practical wisdom. How do you take the principles of the true, the good, and the beautiful and live them out, apply them in your choices, how you show up for your kids, how do you show up for the school board? And that's why the local becomes so important in times like these. You know, it's actually the human-sized problems, uh, which, are, which can be solved and decided only by human beings working together face-to-face in real-life community. And those sorts of things will never be reducible to a machine or to mathematical equations. Um, and we ought to claim ownership over that uh, rather than handing over all our authority to these kind of scientific clerics. So does that uh, call for a religious awakening, another one, um, or is um, uh, do we just need to, you know, read more of the, um, you know, I don't know, more C.S. Lewis and Jeremy Bentham? <laughs> no, no. Uh, the West is the tradition of Athens and Jerusalem. You need reason and revelation. And that means there really is no getting around reference to a higher power. Um, there's a line in the Bible that says, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. 
And it's easy to read that and think it's just a dig at atheists, like, oh, atheists are dumb or something. Um, but the line is actually much more profound. What, what it's saying there is if you tell yourself that you don't worship, that you have no religion, that you don't bend the knee to some higher power, if you tell yourself that, you're fooling yourself. You're making yourself into a fool because everybody gets up in the morning and makes a choice, does something because of what he believes to be good, what he wants, uh, what he's aiming at. And that means there's some highest good somewhere that we are aiming at. Um, and if you tell yourself you're not doing that, you'll just be worshiping without realizing, which is what you see when people kneel at Black Lives Matter rallies and they pray for absolution and forgiveness, or when Dr. Fauci comes up and says, I represent the science. That's not a man doing science, that's a man making claim to clerical authority. Our nation is founded on a different idea. Yes, we do have, don't have a state-established mm -hmm. sect or religion or creed of that kind. And yet we do believe in a creator, and we believe that's what's worthy of our worship. Um, and if we don't believe that, then we're going to find it harder and harder to get out of bed in the morning. So we are going to need a religious revival, yes, of that sort. Yeah, it's the old uh, Chesterton observation, right? When you stop believing in God, you... Um, you uh, are, are apt to believe in anything. You, you're going. Yep. You're going to find something to worship, and then we see the expression of this in all these secular political movements. That's right. And the other thing he says in reference to the Soviet Union is that the idea that you know the religion is the opiate of the masses is a, a great idea. It's just exactly backward, right? This Chestertonian observation that in fact it's the people who believe in something higher than a government who are able to be energetic in resisting the powers of the world at all. If you don't believe that, if you take away people's belief in a supernatural realm, in a higher power, um, then you can insist that you are the highest authority, which is, of course, what a lot of these people want, because then they become the people who get to demand that you bend the knee to them. So far as I'm concerned, that's a bum deal. It's better by far not to put your faith in princes, um, but to owe your allegiance to a power beyond that of this world. He is Spencer Clavin, editor at the Claremont Institute, author of How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for, for Five Modern Crises. How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises is the book released today. Pick it up on Amazon and all the usual places. Spencer Clavin, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And he joined us on the Turnkey.pro Answer Line. This is The Morning Show. More Chicago radio listeners are choosing. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. America First with Sebastian Gorka, today at 3, right before Sean Thompson at 4 on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. The uh, right to die, the death with dignity movement, the promotion of maids, M-A-I-D, like our uh, neighbors to the north in Canada have. Medical assistance and dying maid. Government at your service to take you out. Yep. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. It's a difficult uh, conversation, I think, for some. Not for Zeke Emanuel, who says 75 and you're out, Charles. <laughs> in close. <laughs> I don't know how to got, break this to you. I don't know, man. I got like uh, you know, two minute warning. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Better get your affairs in order. Zeke may be around yeah. the corner. Um but um you know, you you have an elderly parent, a family member who uh is suffering with an incurable disease, uh, and and you know, think of the most ghastly diseases ALS or or dementia, Alzheimer's. And so, you know, there are some that, well, 
to relieve the person from their suffering, from their misery, uh, this should be available. We have there are seven states in the United States that have uh, assisted suicide. I mean, excuse me, there are 10 states that have it and there are seven states that are considering it, while um, the 10 states that do offer it are loosening their rules, cutting wait times, letting nurses join doctors and prescribing legal drugs, letting out-of-staters visit to end their lives. It's interesting. Abortion tourism and euthanasia tourism. Oh, man. How about it? Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. The devil's a liar, as they say. (laughs) Is that right? Yeah, man. 312-642-5600, Three one two six four two fifty six hundred turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six D A turnkey dot pro text. I now this is particularly concerning when Canada is opening up their assisted suicide program, state assisted suicide program, to people with um uh depression, with you know, mental issues, not mental uh disabilities per se, but uh the onset of depression and other potential fleeting mental conditions. Um, and we talked with uh, Bob Woodson about this earlier in the program. The CDC's out with numbers about the uh, inc- incidence of suicidal ideation among young people increasing dramatically, they report, the CDC does. Most teen girls, 57% felt persistently sad or hopeless in 2021, double that's double the rate for teen boys, which is nearly one in three. Nearly one in three teen girls seriously considered attempting suicide. One in three. Uh, alongside them, the majority of LGBTQ students, 52%, have also recently experienced poor mental health, with more than one in five attempting suicide in the past year. And they have this whole breakout. But think about um, this level of despair, and now you have the state interceding with... Uh, a pill to cure you permanently. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Dan, isn't this choice? Isn't this choice? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you 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 know, you. This is my body, my choice. So if I want to go up to the fifteenth floor and jump, you have no right to call the fire department to go down there with that. Was that thing that big trampoline? I don't know what they call it. Yeah, right. The net or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, you. Who are you to tell me that I can't do what I want to do with my body? I mean, isn't that what we're saying here? And aren't it? it and isn't the abortion conversation the top of the slippery slope here? Well, I mean, that's 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 one argument. Um, now, it may turn out that if you don't make the right choice, the state's going to help you out. Uh, New York Times released a piece over the weekend uh, from a Yale professor who suggested that um, Japan that has a demographic problem mm-hmm. because uh, people didn't have kids. And this is something that the prime minister has been pointing out of late, that they're in a... Uh, you know, essentially a generational death spiral. Mm-hmm. Um, he has suggested mass suicide for the elderly to uh, even things out. I feel like this is... Um, wait, 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 wait. I, the math not working there for me. Um, the birth rate's low. Right. Well, so, so you don't want you don't want too many young people having to care for too many oh, old people, okay. so get rid of the old people. So, Simple. Yeah. See how see how easy that is? Yeah, well you get well you don't have any young people, you don't have any old people, so you just got this middle group. 
that really isn't reproducing at the rate that they can, though they should, in order to repopulate. Well, you know, the population is going to get smaller, but yeah. um, they'll be they'll, the ones that survive, I guess, will be happier. Uh, Yusuke Narita is a 37-year-old assistant professor of econ at Yale who researches computerized algorithms. I feel like the only solution is pretty clear. In the end, isn't it mass suicide and mass seppuku of the elderly? Seppuku is an act of ritualistic suicide by disembowelment originating in the 18th century that Ooh, he was referencing. Ouch. Yeah, um, not the way I prefer <laughs> to go. Uh, he noted the possibility of making euthanasia mandatory in the future that would that's come up in discussion. Now, he, of course, he's saying is his um, suggestion of mass suicide was taken out of context. It's just an abstract metaphor and so on and so on and so on. Right. Yeah, I know. Much like uh, his colleague, uh, uh, Professor Singer over at Yale, uh, supports infanticide up to the age of like, I don't know, till the kid can work outside the home. No, but literally he supports infanticide uh-huh. up to like a couple of years of old, a couple of years old. It's um, this is this is right. These are ideas that are so ridiculous. Only an academic could believe them and articulate them. But it's happening. And it's also translating into actual laws and it's translating into situations as we talked about um, last week, a, a woman who uh, transitioned and now feels like she has ruined her life. And she has reached out to the maid system in Canada to end her life for her. Now, did she transitioned? She transitioned or he transitioned? She trans. Or she, I, she, she transitioned a to a he because she, a he. Okay. she removed her breasts and things. Ooh. Right. And now she's not happy with that mm-hmm. decision. She feels like she was duped and she wants to be dead. Another case. And there's so many. We've talked about, uh, a lot about this over the years with Wesley Smith, who's an expert on the topic. A Paralympian veteran wanted a wheelchair lift installed. Canada offered her assistant suicide. Mm-hmm. A 52-year-old retired corporal, Christine Gauthier, who competed in the 2016 Paralympics, asked for a wheelchair lift to be installed in her home. The Canadian, the Canadian Veterans Affairs Office countered with a letter offering to send her a medically-assisted suicide kit. Well, that, that, surely that was a mistake. They, um, they, did, they didn't do that in lieu of, did they? I mean, I, Well, you know, um, I, the, the Trudeau government doesn't make mistakes, Charles. That's what I would say. Okay. Government doesn't make mistakes. And it's interesting. The, with the mistakes they make, governments generally always seem to be on the side of death. Um, interesting, though, this is sort of the zeitgeist. And it is, as you articulated, in part about, you know, my body, my sovereignty, my choice. And that's all well and good. But it's interesting you say that because Canada disagrees. Canada that has the government-assisted suicide. The government is but you have to request it, right? You have to sign off on it, right? Well, well, well right. You, you have to alert the state unless the state alerts you, as in the case of that Paralympian. But, um, but the Canadian health minister is saying suicidal people cannot get suicided. I'm not kidding. Suicidal um, people cannot, cannot be suicided. By the state, right. By the state. Suicidal people are protected from suicide mm-hmm. at the hands of the state, but the why? assisted suicide. Why? Well, Is there it, some presumption that they're not mentally fit to make the call? Well, I, mean, I don't know. I, I don't know how you – anybody who's 
enlisting the state to kill them. Is that not the definition of suicidal? You think, but after again, again, this is Canada, and you know, eh, and uh, so the the health the health minister there, all of the assessors and providers for made medical assisted killing are purposely trained to eliminate people that are suicidal. But they're uh, starting this year killing people that are depressed. And they're killing people who say, I want you to kill me. But but if you're suicidal, so you have to go through some battery of psychological tests in order to determine whether or not you are suicidal so that they in the narrow in the narrow definition that Canada has come up with to pretend like they're interested in saving suicidal people while they're killing suicidal people. But this is jobs, man. This is jobs because you're going to have to have a whole number of bureaucracy here to make this work. I mean, yeah, it, I got to think. Well, and as, as Wesley Smith pointed out about this uh, wordplay that they're engaged in, as the left always is, um, suicide is about what's done, not why. You either enlist the state to kill you or you don't. The state either aids in removing you from the planet or it doesn't. You're, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not suicidal, but I'm, I'm laboring under this malady or mm-hmm. I'm forlorn or whatever the, the criteria is. And it's ever evolving and it's very gooey. It's, it's about what is done what is done? That's what matters. We, we, so at some left, point, the so left it, is always forgetting the behavior piece of this. What actually is done? Well, not so, all the intentions. But at some point, somebody's got to sign off on this. The some point, yeah. At some point, within all this bureaucracy, somebody's got to sign off. Okay, he can do. He can go. We'll 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 let him go. Uh, we'll get him. Uh, we'll get that one. We'll get this one. So so the state then is making the call. On who stays and who's got to go. I mean, but only for point. the greater good. And there's some bureaucrat who's doing this. Only now, for the greater good to make sure that, uh, you know, the algorithms sync up. And but what if the chairman so of the regular party, <laughs> I didn't say it, it makes the call that, and it flows down to the, the mayor makes the call. I don't know. I mean, does, can it be political? Can it get to be political if there's some controversy? And I, I say I donated to this campaign a few years ago, and they remember, well, that guy, you know, he's a loyal, loyal guy. Yeah, that, you know what that guy is? That guy's suicidal. Right. He, <laughs> no, actually, no, actually, that guy's not suicidal because I guess we don't kill suicidal right. people. We well, suicidal. actually, if we kill them, they're not suicidal. So actually, whatever. That guy has an incurable condition. He donated to the wrong person. So uh, we need to do the humane thing and put him out of his misery. And remember, when we do it, it's not suicide. But can you imagine the, the role that <laughs> clout would play in <laughs> Illinois? If you got clout, what you could, how you could use your clout within that context for yourself or maybe for a, a relative for someone? You could say, hey, look, I, can you do me a favor? I got uh, Aunt Jane here, you know, and she's she wants to go, but they won't let her go. And can you help me out here? And then, yeah, you know, no. So. And, and, and whatever you do, don't ask on Jane. Right. Don't ask on Jane. But, you know, the, 
just trust me on this one. Yeah, just help me on this one. Can you? Yeah, there's that? no right. There's no corruption possible right. here, of course, because you. I mean, you have public health professionals administering mm-hmm. this, so uh, you know, no, no worries there. Um, also, I mean, do you find this these sort of verbal gymnastics? Do you find them persuasive as to the larger appropriateness of state-sponsored medically assisted killings? That's it. That's that's where we're that's where we're going. That's the bottom of the pit. You know, that uh, yeah, that's the bottom of the pit when you talk about uh, being the state having some say over 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 human life. I mean, and you know, you go back to uh, you know they can take away the right of say parents as the state of Illinois has done with underage uh, girls and, and abortions. Uh, Parents have no say. If she comes in here at age uh, 14 and she wants to get an abortion, she can go through a process and, you know, she can get an abortion and the parents have nothing to say about it. Isn't that right. – isn't that – can't that happen in Illinois now? Well, it absolutely can. And, and we – you know, it's a, and it's a, a cottage industry for Illinois. We're uh, accepting abortion tourists. And so why not pass right to die and accept uh, – uh, suicidal tourists too. While yeah. we're at it, and get some weed while, while you do it, and maybe you want to go yeah. over and throw a few quarters at the slot machine, you know, while you're oh. here too. Little video poker, yep. maybe. Can I yep. interest you in some video poker? Yep. Have Illinois. you seen our lovely currency exchanges? Would you like a, um, you know, a bottle of Crazy Horse? Dude, we're in the middle of everything. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, it's a mob economy. <laughs> You know, if you're going to get them at the front, you, and, and if you don't get them at the front, I should say, if they escape the womb, then like, get them on the back end and make money in the process. Mm-hmm. Yep. Vedette in Michigan, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hi, good morning. I'm Vedette Cordes from St. Joe, Michigan. I basically feel, I agree with you, it's a slippery slope. I've been caring for my father for the last year in and out of hospitals. And to me, with the crisis in the medical field, which I have personally experienced, lack of staff thanks to COVID mandates, it's just another means of cleaning up the pool. I mean, they have tried. We were trying to heal my father, and all they wanted to do is give him fentanyl and morphine and just rid of the problem. And my father has literally been beaten down by the fact of lack of care. And to me, this is spiraling down. What we need is better medical care and people who care, doctors, nurses. I mean, all they do now is nurse practitioners, no more MDs. And you're on your own. If you don't have an advocate fighting for yourself at the hospital, they'll kill you. And that's exactly how I feel with everything I've gone through this past year with my dad. Thanks for the call, Vedette. Yeah, the compassion we've been witness to during COVID, combine that with a state actuary overseeing the process. That should work out well for you, Mm. for a family member. Uh, Rick in Downers Grove. Hey, good morning. Hey, I agree with you guys. And this is pre-COVID, so we didn't have any of that. It was just nobody knew about COVID. But my mom was like 90 years old and had a surgery, and she had to go into a place where they have like, you know, uh, dementia patients, elderly dementia patients. When my sister and I went to visit, we sat there. The first thing we thought was, this scares you to get old. This is how it's going to be. 90% of these people are sitting there being kept alive with 
handfuls of pills, and their family members have to help them out of bed, to the washroom, to the shower, feed them, put them in their wheelchair, sit them in front of a window. And this is costing these people ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000 a month. And there's no miracle cure where these people are going to get up and all of a sudden start skiing down a mountain. This is the, that, that day is the best it's going to be because the next day is going to be a little worse. And we actually thought that we're against this sister suicide. We thought and there might be a, a, a sliver of the population where this might not be a bad idea, where you set it up before you get to that point to where when you got to take care of everything i got to do, it's time to pull the plug. All, and, all right, Rick, thanks for the call. Uh, Verlon, Southside. Hello? Yeah, Verlon. Hey, uh, how's it going? Listen, I'm, I'm pro-life, okay? You all know that. But I'm of two minds because I work in the medical field, and I've seen this for years. We basically already have it here. It's called hospice. And uh, you have to ask for it, and, the, and your family has to sign off. They don't just kill you. You have to sign off, Not and they, they, give you a, they, they give you a cocktail of morphine and Ativan, and it slows your heart, and you die. But what I wanted to call in and really say is, now, listen, I used to take care of a person that was a WFPT and didn't have any arms and suffered from severe pain, and they used to talk to me all the time. I want to die. I want to die. They don't have any more quality of life, and that's how we evaluate people in the medical profession. Do you have any quality of life? And if, if, if the doctor feels you don't have quality of life, you don't, and the family signs off on it, then you can die. I mean, I, you know what? I, I don't want people to die, but if you feel you don't have anything else to contribute to, to life, you shouldn't have that right taken away from you if the state provides you that out. Mm-hmm. Thanks for the call, Verlon. Quality of life, it's interesting. It's a good piece in the Wall Street Journal about uh, this in a different sort of context. Uh, when uh, uh, health uh, insurance companies use quality-adjusted life years in health coverage and insurance reimbursement decisions, they treat the um, uh, qualies, Q-A-L-Y-S, uh, uh, using quality-adjusted life years to make coverage or reimbursed, uh, reimbursement decisions. Um, they place a greater value on the year of additional life for a healthy person than they do for a person with disabilities. That's happening right now. Mm. Yeah, I think he makes a really good point about hospice care. I mean, you, you make that decision in concert with your physician, and the government is not involved. I mean, we, well, there's a, there's a difference. Just went through that. Uh, well, sorry to interrupt, but, but I mean, I, I, there's a difference between refusing a particular treatment and enlisting the state to kill you. Yeah, I, absolutely. And I think that's you know? where. That's that's where I have a lot of questions. If the state is in any way involved, any way involved, uh, that to me is problematic again because of the slippery slope. Yeah, and and think about think about that for a second though too. What, what I just said, the, the states which sanctions this among uh, insurance providers, mm-hmm. a greater value of a year of additional life for a quote unquote healthy person than for a person with disabilities. Another year of my life is worth more than the year of um, a person with uh, Down syndrome. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Nope, it's not. Nope, I get that. that that's the law. That's yeah. what's provided for right now. Actually, mm-hmm. Republicans in the House are moving to change that. Good for them. But um, 
you know, but so thinking about those sorts of decisions that have been made, you want the state or big insurance companies, which are essentially state actors, mm-hmm. you want them in a position where they're the shot caller. You want to cede your sovereignty or family members' uh, end-of-life decisions to the state? No, no, you okay. don't. And, and you and you want you, you want some protection from the insurance companies as well, in terms of what they will and will not provide at the end of life, and and uh, because they obviously are going to do the most cost-effective thing. Hmm. Uh, Richard in Blue Island. Hey Dan, you know, let's bring back Jonestown. Only let's hold it in San Francisco, and make people eat human feces off the streets of San Francisco. All okay? right, all right, Richard. Um, maybe that some maybe a Harvard professor will come up with that. We've already heard from Yale. Uh, Charles Thomas, ABC Seven political reporter. Thanks so much for man, sitting in for, for Amy the last me, two man. days. I enjoyed this. I enjoyed this. Really, great. As it to... is. It's cathartic. You know what I yes. mean. Yes, exactly. Get a, get a jump start on the day. Yep. You know, especially since you got Zeke Emanuel lurking around you. <laughs> you know, you want to maximize every single minute of the day, Charles. I might be waiting outside. My head is on a <laughs> swivel. If I see Zeke, I'm going the other way. It's what Chicago is talking about. It's Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan and Amy on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.